Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the MedSLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously, we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well and that's not something I always was very confident in and the MedLCP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive 
and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive, collaborative environment. Can't say enough about it. If you're interested in joining us, enrollment opens December 9th. You can go to medslpcollective.com and either get on the waiting list or if it is past December 9th, you can join. So um, enrollment will be open from December 9th through December 13th. So I hope you'll join us then at medslpcollective.com. This is episode 113 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kristen West. Kristen is a graduate of the University of Pittsburgh with an undergraduate degree in communication sciences and disorders and has her master's degree from Kent State University in speech-language pathology. She has experience in a wide variety of pediatric settings, including pediatric acute care, NICU, CICU, rehab, birth to three, and preschool early intervention, in addition to serving as a safe feeding consultant to local school programs. She has previously served as adjunct faculty at a local university as well. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am so excited for this episode today. Not sure excited is the word. I think excited. Hopeful. Glad to have this conversation. Um, This is an awesome conversation we're having with Kristen West, and she's just someone that, like, I, I really just... This is why I love like doing this podcast, and this is why I love having the MedSLP Collective and being introduced to like amazing, brilliant people in her field, because she's someone that, you know, everyone's like, who knows about pediatric feeding and swallowing? And <laughs> there's not not a lot of, of experts in this area in our field. It's such a, you know, small and under-researched area, and I know there's so many people that want to get involved in it, and there's just not... What am I trying to say? (laughs) There's not an easy way to get into it. Um, And Kristen's someone that when I first met her, I was like, oh my gosh, this girl knows everything. Not everything, but um, (laughs) she's extremely, extremely knowledgeable in pediatric feeding. Um, And not only that, but she's extremely knowledgeable in the laws and the legalities and logistics of all this stuff. And, you know, I'm going through a lot of this actually with my son right now. So this it's really freaking close to home. (laughs) But the conversation is so important because I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of times we consider med SLPs and school SLPs as being two completely separate things, but there definitely is an overlap and there can be some medically compromised kids that are in our schools needing dysphagia services, but they're in the school. So there isn't a medical SLP there. And I just, I love this conversation with Kristen about, why we should absolutely be helping these kids in the schools that have dysphagia, what the laws say around it, what the case law says, what ASHA says, and, you know, how basically, if this is something you're interested in, it might be something you can create your own position to do. So I hope you guys really, really enjoy this episode. I know I did. Like I said, it hit a little close to home for me and I share some kind of personal things that I'm going through in this episode, but it's, it's just wonderful. And Thank you, Kristen. You're amazing. If you guys haven't heard, we are reopening the MedSLP Collective on December 9th for new members. And Kristen is one of our wonderful, wonderful mentors. Uh, We get asked all the time, do you guys cover pediatrics? And yes, we do. Um, We've made a huge, huge effort in the last few months of really beefing up our pediatric medical resources. And we've got 
quite a few mentors now that are able to help out. We've done bonus webinars every month for the past few months. Those webinars are for ASHA CEUs on pediatric medical SLP. So we are definitely trying to help those of you guys out because I know some people work, I think you guys say from the cradle to the grave or something. <laughs> you work with the babies, you work with, you know, the little kids and outpatient all the way up to, you know, my wonderful old people that I love. So <laughs> we are definitely trying to bridge that gap in the collective and getting lots of pediatric resources in there. So if you're interested in checking out the MedSLP Collective, you can go to MedSLPCollective.com and join the wait list or just wait till December 9th when we reopen the doors again and you can join us. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Good morning, Kristen. Good morning, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me on this wonderful Saturday morning. No problem. To talk about this incredibly complex, detailed topic of dysphagia in schools. Yes. <laughs> very <laughs> complex and very much a needed conversation in the field, though. Very, very, very much so. Yes. All right. So before we dive in, tell people a little bit about who you are. So I'm Kristen West. I am a speech language pathologist in Western Pennsylvania. Um, I have worked in a variety of settings on um, pediatric acute care, NICU, the CICU, a transition to home NICU for medically complex children, birth to three early intervention, preschool. Currently, um, I work at an educational services agency um, working with children with uh, feeding and swallowing needs in the school, in addition to an early intervention population. And I've been an adjunct professor as well. Excellent. All right. So tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into this really subspecialty, I guess I should say. So I had a lot of experience with pediatric feeding and swallowing. Actually, kind of from my graduate school, I did a clinical uh, rotation um, in a integrated preschool for kids with special needs and typical peers. So there's like a 50-50 match of them. And that's really where I got exposed to feeding and swallowing issues in pediatrics. It wasn't something that I had had a course in yet. It was just something that had cropped up clinically. And when I started asking about it at my university, it actually came out that they were kind of developing a hybrid course in our dysphagia course that would address some pediatric feeding and swallowing. So I took a clinical placement then once I fell in love with it um, at Cincinnati Children's. And then I ended up um, just kind of diving into it from a birth to three population during my CFY. And then I worked my way into an acute care setting and a couple of hospitals. And then I ended up making the switch just for a variety of reasons to a community provider, um, an early intervention provider out here where I live. And once I got there about a year in, you know, I just started talking about all these kids that I were was seeing or was kind of hearing of and passing that had these feeding and swallowing needs and, and, you know, kind of reviewing with the administrators there what was going on kind of in our field. And, you know, I had a great supervisor there who was really, you know, willing to listen and agreed that, you know, there was something that we should be looking into addressing the needs. So we built um, a program that would allow us in our area to access um, them to be able to access somebody with, with expertise because what we were finding was, it wasn't necessarily that speech therapists didn't think that it was relevant for uh, feeding and swallowing services to be addressed in the schools, especially in a more suburban or rural area. They did realize that access to those services was pretty diminished, but they didn't, they wanted to practice ethically and they felt like I haven't touched dysphagia except for one course in grad school, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I really don't want to do harm that's outside of my expertise. You know, what, what can I do? So we ended up building like a program where those speech therapists, if they had a child that had an identified area of need, they could come, they could consult me. So then I could come in and do, you know, a feeding and swallowing assessment, like a bedside and determine, you know, kind of what next steps would be and, and kind of review their medical records and make a feeding plan for them while they were at their educational setting. So we really were making sure that their needs were being addressed. So that's kind of how I, that's the convoluted story of how I got to where I am. Yeah. But I, I think what's so incredible is like, this role didn't really exist, you know, and you guys came together and realized there was such a need for it and created it, basically. Right. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of case law uh, behind it saying, you know, dysphagia, although not identified in IDEA specifically, is uh, considered a related service. Um, it falls under our license to practice, our C's on um, state licensure. And even in my state, it falls under the teaching certificate. So, like, if you read the teaching certificate that the Department of Ed puts out for the speech therapists that need teaching certificates um, here in Pennsylvania, 
because they needed to have a teaching certificate to work in the schools. So if you look under that, it's even listed in that in that not only state license, but also in the uh, Department of Ed certification, hey, you know, dysphagia falls under here. So that's where your level of expertise lies. And then we have, you know, IDEA and um, a lot of other kind of case law in the field that says, you know, we need to be making sure that these children's needs are being met when they're at school for a variety of reasons. So yeah, we had great administrators that were really on board with kind of looking into that, diving into that, and recognizing that this was kind of an underserved population and being able to address that. So yeah, it was really, it was really awesome to kind of just come in and, and create a role that in a, in a program kind of from the ground up, that's always super exciting. It, it's been awesome. Yeah. I mean, Challenging, but awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind of going through that with my son now, cause he's just transitioned from EI to CPSE and the district, I have to say the director of special ed here has been wonderful to work with. And she's like, traditionally, we, we just don't do this because it's just something we haven't done before. And she's like, but I 100% understand that there is a need for your son to get these services. And it absolutely does have an educational impact. And we're going to figure this out. Like, <laughs> so I'm so happy that they, you know, we do have feeding therapists that are working with him at school and, and things are going wonderful, but it's just crazy that, you know, she's like, I don't really have anything to go off of, but we're going to make it work. Like, <laughs> so yeah. So I'm so glad you're here to talk about this because there actually are some case laws and things like that, that we, we should have a better understanding of. Right. And then one thing that I always hear a lot of times, like when I did my ASHA presentation last year or that I see on like the Facebook groups is, oh, my administrators are telling me this isn't an educational need. This is a medical need and, and they need to address this at the hospital or with a medical provider. And and really the case law is not on your side with that argument. I think sometimes, you know, yes, if they need a swallow study, obviously they have to go to the hospital to get that done. Or it doesn't obviously hurt to have an outpatient feeding assessment done at the hospital. But my cautionary tale to people is you can't just take the paperwork that they get from their hospital appointments and then just blindly implement that at school or just document it in the IEP and say, well, you know, wash my hands a bit, we're done. It, there's really a lot more that needs to go into it. So one, ensure that the student is safe, but two, make sure that you're actually meeting like your mandate to look at those recommendations in that unique setting at school and see, does this really work for them here? Because school's a whole different ball of wax in comparison to an outpatient assessment. And I've worked in all of these domains, so I can tell you that yeah. they're vastly different. <laughs> yeah. I got kind of dragged into like a situation where just some local SLPs had called me because they're like, you know all about dysphagia. And basically the, the, the student had a modified report that said like he only could be on like honey thick liquids and puree from the modified report. But the family was like, we feed him everything at home. He has some difficulties, but he's otherwise fine. Never had any, you know, health issues. But the, the school was like having a fit because this was what was documented on the modified report. So they're like, this is what we have to go by. But the kid is like never drank thick and liquids at home in his life. So it was, <laughs> I got dragged into this, but I was like, you guys, this is out of my wheelhouse. Like I honestly don't have enough understanding of the school district laws and things like that to be able to consult with you and help you. Yeah. And that could be a really sticky situation yeah. too, because, you know, if something were to happen and they were deviating from what the medical record right. says, then there is like a component of liability. So how do you navigate that, you know, do you set like, so do you send them back for another swallow study? Do you recommend that they go to like an, you know, to an outpatient feeding clinic to get a medical assessment to kind of get the paperwork trail medically to like, you know, follow what they, what the family wants to implement in the school. It really, it really gets dicey in schools because you're taking the child away from the parent and then taking a hundred percent responsibility for that child while they're in your hands. So if something happens, it's just, there's a lot of risk involved there and it's just a lot of moving pieces. So yeah, it does get very difficult. <laughs> All right. So kind of Kristen and I were talking about in the beginning where this whole conversation stemmed from. And I think, you know, there's so much change going on in our little SLP world right now. And, and I think what's, what's so great is that our field is so vast that you can work in a variety of settings. And I know, you know, especially in the collective, like we've gotten so many school SLPs that now want to like PRN in acute care or skilled nursing, but need some more medical help. And then kind of vice versa, we have this slew of people that unfortunately have been laid off by PDPM and are now working in the schools like, oh, I have all this medical background. I have an extensive knowledge of dysphagia, but how does it fit into the schools? <laughs> so not a quick and easy answer, but that's kind of why we're, that's where this whole conversation stemmed from is to kind of give you guys 
a little idea of the background of the actual laws and what we do know about treating dysphagia in the schools. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a lot of case law and a lot of where I think people get confused or things get a little sticky is that IDEA doesn't specifically outline, say, feeding in IDEA whenever they talk about, you know, areas of qualification for special education services. But what we do know is that IDEA mandates that student uh, students get services for health-related disorders that affect the ability of the student to access or participate fully in their educational program. That's exactly what it says in there. And actually, when IDEA went back up to kind of be reauthorized, there was a push by some individuals to say, okay, I really think that we should include dysphagia in this in this, and specifically name it. And what they kind of came back and said was, you know, it's purposely big because we don't want to just have people say, well, if it's not on the list, it, it doesn't qualify as a related medical service that should be covered by IDEA. So it's purposely broad. We think it's broad enough that it includes dysphagia and we don't think we need to specifically name it. I understand the point of it. I think that's where it gets mucky though for some people as well. I don't see dysphagia listed as a related medical service or an area of qualification. So therefore it must not have an educational impact, but that's not actually true because if you think about it, the mandate is that students have to have health related services that would allow them to access and fully participate in their educational program. Well, what we know is if you get aspiration pneumonia and you're not at school, you can't access your curriculum. So there, there's one, two, if you don't eat enough at school because you, you, you can't, you're not getting the right accommodations, you're not getting your food cut up, somebody is not positioning you appropriately, they're not using the adaptive equipment, um, you don't have the right diet level, and you can't eat your lunch in that period of time, then you're undernourished, and that's not optimal for learning either. So either way you look at it from in terms of the law, it really does fall under that purview of IDEA and what the original intention of IDEA was. Yeah. And like for my son, especially, it became more of like a social issue because, you know, like I was trying to work so closely with his preschool teachers and they're like, you know, maybe just send in his milk and just have his milk at preschool and do the meals at home. And I was like, that's fine. I don't want this responsibility on you guys. But he'd be sitting at snack time drinking his milk and all these kids have all these other snacks. And he was like reaching and wanting to like eat with them. Yeah. So, you know, they're like, what can we do? So, you know, I did send in like some dissolvables and stuff and the teachers were fine with that, but I just felt so bad. Like I didn't even think of that at first. Like, oh my God, the poor kid just wants to eat with his friends. Like, cause that's what everybody's doing. Right. Like, why can't I have some of those? So exactly. And that's the other piece too. Um, I had a situation, um, an individual that I consulted with, he didn't really have any safety issues, but he did kind of have volume issues because he had a sensory processing disorder. He had a lot of issues with eating and distraction and certain food textures. And, and he, he had skill to manage them, but he had just a horrible background that he just could not tolerate certain foods. And what would end up happening between all the noise and all the smells and everything going on at that time, he would throw up like a ton. And then kids didn't want to sit next to him and it became really dicey. Like it had a social impact on him. And that was the thing that really, you know, kind of highlighted to me and I was able to use it as an example to other people that, you know, the social component of feeding is also something that you have to think about. We talk, we work on pragmatic skills in a school. There's no reason that we shouldn't think about the impact that feeding and swallowing disorders have socially on a little kid that we're seeing as well, or even a high schooler. You know, I've seen kids across the age uh, brackets whenever I'm working and in any age bracket or, or any, you know, disability classification type as terms of IDEA, they all have a social impact of their feeding and swallowing issues. So there's a lot to consider and there's a lot of reasons why you can say, okay, you know, I do think that this has an educational impact. So yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot of pieces to kind of, to kind of consider there. Oh, here, I pulled this up so we can insert this if you want somewhere. Okay. So when the federal register went back to reauthorize IDEA, one of the comments somebody said they wanted, one commenter stated that the roles and responsibilities for speech language pathologists in schools have been expanded to help children gain language and literacy skills and also they should consider um, other health impairment uh, service provisions such as dysphagia in the definition of SLP services and IDEA. And what they came back, the exact quote when they came back from um, IDEA, it said, the act provides speech language uh, services for children with disabilities. It does not... We believe that the definition is sufficiently broad to include services for other health impairments such as dysphagia and therefore decline to revise the definition included in the specific services. So they, that was exactly their comment back. 
during IDEA reauthorization when they tried to redefine things. I want to give you facts. Yes, give us the facts, Kristen. (laughs) All right. Do we want to dive into all the messy law stuff? Yeah. So the big thing that, you know, I think when I kind of start thinking about this is think about kids with food allergies, right? We don't just say like, oh, food allergies are a medical need for our kiddo in the school. So, you know, you need to deal with that with your school. We're not going to do anything here, right? Like we have allergy tables. We like say, don't send peanuts into the room. We're a peanut free facility. Um, And there are a ton, there's a ton of money that is spent on making sure that the lunches that we serve in schools are nutritious. Like my daughter comes home from school and says to me, you know, I can't not take the vegetable because I'm required to take it because we're so focused on nutrition in school. But yet kids with dysphagia, it's kind of like, I don't see the same rules always necessarily being applied or talked about in the same way. I mean, the and if you look at the kind of the data between like 2017 or 2018, it's something like $17.9 billion to $20 billion is spent on to feed school-age children and school-based programs. So we're spending all this money to make sure that kids who don't have feeding and swallowing needs are getting adequate nutrition because we understand that malnutrition really affects learning. But these kids that have feeding and swallowing issues, it it's kind of like they're you know, the argument, oh, it's not educational. Like, we can't make that because look how much money we're spending to, to feed these other kids, right? Just some data about that because I'm so data-driven. So malnutrition in kids, so if the effects of malnutrition on children, so there's some studies that say they score 7.5% lower on math tests. They're 19% less likely to read a simple sentence by a year, eight years old. They're 13% less likely to be in an appropriate grade level, and they will go on to earn 20% less as an adult. So, I mean, if our goal is in special education to make sure that we are allowing children to maximize their potential, we have to talk about their access to food and getting enough food safely while they're at school, or they're just not going to benefit from, from what we're learning. And, and really, that's what the case law ends up coming back to say is that there, so there have been some cases that have been either at the state level or at the national level um, that kind of support dysphagia services in the school. The big one that kind of was the landmark one, even though it doesn't specifically deal with dysphagia, is um, Irving School District versus Tatro in 1984. What it did was it defined what we call a bright line test for medical services, medical services versus what is a other health impairment or related service that children need to attend school. So it really just says it has to be a service that a child needs so they're able to benefit from their special education and it doesn't have to be something provided by a physician. So this was really specific to a child getting catheterization that he needed at school, that the school nurse could do it and should do it because that was something that he needed done. He didn't have to leave school to have this done for him. Um, but it really kind of defined the line, what we call a bright line test. So the rule is if it can be done by somebody other than a physician, it's not technically like a medical only service. So when you think about that in terms of dysphagia services, we don't need a physician to diagnose or address dysphagia needs. So therefore we can say that that's a related service. So that's kind of like the one kind of groundbreaking, like ground rule case that I always talk about. There was also another case that was the Cedar Rapids School District uh, versus Garrett, which was 1999. So this was a student that had a trach, but also specifically mentioned that the child had dysphagia and required a modified diet and had some feeding needs. And they were kind of fighting the school district on the trach care and the dysphagia services and making sure that the child was getting what he needed. Um, And that ended up kind of saying, no, you know, the school does need to address this. This is a related service. Um, There's actually been some other cases that talk about, okay, yes, you've documented that they have a modified diet, but are you actually implementing it correctly? So not just making sure that it pops up somewhere in the IEP, but do you actually really know what that means? And so there was one in New Mexico, the Department of Ed had a state level hearing and it was talking about a child that had a modified diet and required thick and liquids and specific strategies like positioning and reflux precautions and things like that. and they had documented it kind of like a one sentence thing, but they really didn't put it into like his health plan to really show that it was being implemented. And so the, the kind of outcome of that was they had to modify the child's individual health plan. So it complied with all of these dysphagia related needs that the child had. But then we also, then it said, now you need to train the staff to make sure that the staff actually knows like 
what does that mean? Like what, what is a mechanical stop? Are you making sure that you're not giving the child something that it, that, you know, at that time was mechanical soft, or do you know, like what this thickness looks like? Can you assess it? Do you know what that is? And then there's a really scary one that I never can say this school district's name, right? But it's like Kentucky Valley School District. Um, somebody in New Hampshire is probably going to say like, no, <laughs> it's right. I'm sorry. I always butcher it. But they literally said, okay, you have denied free and appropriate education. So the thing in education field is you have to make sure that you are providing free and appropriate education to students so that they are able to access their curriculum and participate fully. This school district actually was found to be denying free and appropriate education because they ignored the safety of the student as it related to silent aspiration. So this child ended up getting two separate hospitalizations that were directly related that they tied back to inappropriate feeding being done at the school level, then leading to his hospitalization and him missing school. And so then he ended up being, you know, they ended up getting dinged for that because they could trace it back that, you know, they were following it at home. They weren't following it at school. He got sick. He missed school. So, you know, it was, it's like a big deal that you are there to make sure that they can access their curriculum. If you don't follow what they need, you're, you're kind of at risk. So, yeah. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Um, and then there's a recent one, which they didn't really publish what ended up happening, but there was a family in um, Wake County in North Carolina that was actually kind of, they were leaving birth to three services and they were coming into um, preschool based services at their county level. Um, Cause in North Carolina, like the counties run all the special education programming for the school or for all the schools are run by the county. And he was going to a special ed preschool and they said, well, I know you're getting feeding and swallowing services in birth to three, but we don't do that here. It's not educationally relevant. So you're going to have to like get it somewhere else. And the mom's argument was, you know, but you're working on potty training and you're working on him feeding himself like fine motor and you're working on him being able to walk, but you're not going to help him eat. But why are you doing all these other ADLs? Like, I don't, I don't get it. And so she was really fighting for feeding, not just like addressing his dysphagia, but actual feeding therapy in the school. And she was elevating it to, um, you know, take a case. And I think they ended up settling, you know, out of court. So we don't have like a ton of documentation on what happened there. But I think it's an interesting point to consider when we think about feeding and, and swallowing services in the school. So that's exactly the situation that happened with us. I don't know if I told you this whole story, Kristen, but we, um, there was a special needs preschool that I wanted my son to go to, like since he was born, since we knew he was going to have special needs. And we lived on one end of town and this school was on the other end. And we just kept thinking like, we want to live in that area. We want to move to that area. So we eventually moved over here last year in the anticipation that he would literally go to the school two blocks away from our new house. And we go for our, you know, little orientation day and they tell us, well, we can't accept anybody that has feeding issues here. And I was like, it literally says like in gigantic letters, like all inclusive special needs preschool here. Like, you're literally telling me my child can't come here. And she was like, yeah, we we just can't deal with that here. And I was like, yeah, like, it was just, I was so flabbergasted. And like, you know, then we had the whole district meeting and, you know, it was, it, it kind of got nasty because they were like, well, what do you mean that he can't go there? And I was like, that's what they said. And they're like, okay, well, we have other options. And I was just so like distraught that this all-inclusive special needs preschool told me that my child with feeding issues could not go there. So we ended up just paying privately because he's going to some just amazing little private preschool that soaks him right up and is happy to take on anything he needs now. But yeah, it's happening out there. And and kind of what was interesting was that the district wanted to document that that we, some something like we decided against sending our child there. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to go in the document documentation the school decided he wasn't going to go there. They wouldn't accept him. And she's like, well, you know, I, I don't know how to document that. And I was like, exactly what I just said. Please write that down. And it, and I, you know, I feel like I have these conversations a lot with, with different speech language pathologists. Like, and when I hear them saying things like, I, I just, I don't, I, I can't, we can't address this. I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I'm a school SLP. I've done this for 25 years. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I think that, yeah, I understand the ethical kind of dilemma that they get into, but then then that can't just be a door shut. We have to come up with like great yeah, solutions yeah. for, okay, you know, 
I use myself as an example. I am not Craig Coleman. I'm not a fluency specialist. I don't deal with a lot of fluency issues, but if a child were to come onto my caseload and that I was the only provider, I would not say, I'm sorry, I don't do fluency. I would say, okay, I don't know a lot about fluency. How do I actually make sure that I'm providing the best care that this kiddo needs? I think it, I mean, I know it's a little it's a little more complex, but it's the same principle. So then if you are not comfortable ethically providing the intervention or addressing those needs, then how do we find somebody who does have those qualifications or those specializations and make sure that these students are getting what they need so they can access their, their curriculum and they can participate with their peers? I, I mean, that was definitely a lot of what we dealt with when we were trying to figure out how do we start making sure that we're addressing feeding and swallowing services and the need, because I, I won't sugarcoat it. We, it wasn't being addressed before this program started three years ago. You know, I mean, and it was being addressed to varying levels. Some people were documenting, you know, oh, they have to have this modified diet and talking to the kitchen and kind of letting it go. But it was really it was kind of shocking, actually, the amount of information that I gleaned from nurses versus the speech language pathologist. So sometimes the SLPs would have no clue. Like, I didn't know this kid was still drinking from a sippy cup in third grade or that this child had, you know, a modified diet because I don't go into the cafeteria. I only see them, you know, during our educational time. But the nurse could tell me, they're like, oh, yeah, they had a swallow study. Let me pull my file. Okay, you know, five years ago that recommended this. So this is what the PCA has been doing. But it was almost like the nurses had the information. So really had to figure out how do we make sure these children are getting what they need, but how do we make sure we're doing it and we're doing implementing it with fidelity and making sure that it's not just, okay, it's in your job descriptions. Now you have to do it. Like that's, I'm not advocating for that because that's also, you know, a terrible way to address those needs. I think that's the fine line that we're just in such the thick of it now. And like, that's exactly what happened with this preschool. They just slammed the door in our face. Like the director just said, we're not even going to entertain this. No questions asked. That's it. And then, you know, we found this preschool that was like, we'd be more than happy to take him. Like it's kind of out of our realm, but we're so happy to work with you, work with a therapist, get his needs met. And it's been just a wonderful collaboration with kind of every the special ed teacher, with everybody in the room. And then on the flip side, we did have we've had a few OTs that they've brought in and the OTs calling me like all about, you know, we do this feeding, we do that feeding. And I was like, do you have any experience with feeding with this child? And she's like, no, but it's within our scope of practice. So I'm going to learn. And I was like, no, please, please don't learn on my child in school. Like, please go get some other training before you just start feeding my child something. Like we have a good system going with Everybody else in the school, everybody's on board with it. Like, please don't go messing with it when you have no experience whatsoever. Right. So I think that maybe is a good segue to like, so how do we, so, you know, we we talked about, okay, here's the the legislation and the mandates that say no feeding and swallowing is relevant. So if you have the experience and you're advocating to provide those services, okay, here's the documentation that you can take. The one caveat I will say is you have to kind of check your state laws too. I have heard rumors that there are some department of eds that have like written into their kind of department of ed policies that they don't address that. I've never seen it. I've just heard people report it. So I always just say, you know, so much across our country, especially when you talk about department of ed is based on a state to state level. So, you know, kind of look at that. I'm not saying that if it's written into your state law that, or your state department of ed's kind of like policies and manuals that it's right. It's just going to make the battle a little bit, I think a, a little bit harder for you, but you definitely have things at the federal level that, that help support those services. My point is, you have access to the information you need if you have the expertise and, and you're fighting an uphill battle for how do we start addressing these needs in schools. The flip side is, okay, I recognize that these needs need to be addressed, but we are, you know, maybe don't have access to a bunch of trained SLPs that are able to provide that service, which is kind of the situation that I stepped into. So how do we look at this and make sure that students are getting what they need, but by a uh, trained professional that actually has experience and training in in feeding and and swallowing, you know, because that's part of what you have to think about when you're practicing is is making sure you're doing it ethically. Um, What we ended up doing, you know, where I am right now was making like an expert driven consultative model. So it's not perfect. We're not doing feeding therapy yet. We're, you know, we're really trying to take back years of logs of saying, okay, there are children that have safety issues that need to be addressed that 
we're not even sure what, you know, maybe they're implementing it correctly, but it's not documented, right? Or the flip side, like it's documented, but do we really know what that looks like and what are our checks and balances and, and how do we help, you know, schools in our area be able to address that? So we made like an expert consultation model. So you have a child who's either high risk for feeding and swallowing issues, the cafeteria, the teacher, somebody says something's going on, you know, they're choking, they don't chew their food, they swallow foods whole, you know, something, something's happening or they come in with a swallow study or an outpatient feeding report from a children's hospital or a feeding clinic. And you're, and you're looking at that as an SLP and you're saying, okay, I think I know what this means, but I, I'm not comfortable actually making sure this is being implemented. What do we do? So the way that we did this is it's like, I'm a resource and we share across the County. So the referrals come in, I get a medical record release. I review that I come in and I see them in that natural environment. So what I try to do is I try to like do an observation because I'm not just there for the kiddo that, but I'm also there for the entire team and all of the providers. So I'm looking at, you know, what does it say that this should be happening? What is actually happening? And then kind of making sure I'm providing the training. But then also what I'll tell you happens a lot, which I think I see a lot of people say, well, we don't address feeding and swallowing in school, but we make sure we follow the swallow study to a T or we swat, we make sure we follow exactly what the outpatient feeding team says to a T. But there are just so many factors at a school that you don't think about um, if you're not working in one. And I'm guilty of that. When I was working at like doing swallow studies and doing outpatients and hospital-based services, I'd be like, well, at school, just sit them in the corner and like put them, face them away so they don't have distractions and, you know, make sure that they have enough time and somebody's watching them one-on-one, you know, and making all these recommendations, but you don't think about, they're sitting in a cafeteria, there's, you know, 100, 200 other, other students there, and what does that look like? And then, yeah, maybe they have 30 minutes for their meal, but how much of that is going through the line to pick up their food, or, you know, how much is the fact that they've been at school for four hours playing into that, or, you know, or they want to socialize, so are they using the strategies that they, you know, that are recommended, or is that feasible for them to implement? I think kind of making the switch from the medical setting to the more community provider selling really kind of shines a light on like, how realistic are the recommendations that you're making? It really made me think to myself like, oh, there are things that I have said in the past that I now realize I would never recommend again because it, it's just not, it's just not feasible or it's not realistic. No wonder I wanted to say families were non-compliant because I was being a terrible recommender. Like I had no idea what the reality was. You know, that's kind of my caveat there too, is you can't just say, okay, this child has a PCA or this child, you know, needs help in the cafeteria, plop somebody down, follow these recommendations. You really need to evaluate them and and see, does this work for the setting we're in? And if not, what, you know, what do we need to do? Yeah. So I guess kind of where I want to touch on it and you touched on a little bit here too, is, is kind of the ethical issue, like, especially from ASHA and really within our scope of practice. And I, you know, I, I know I'm kind of dealing with some OTs that I think are overstepping their boundaries into our thing too, but you know, kind of what, what is ASHA's stance on this? And then where we need to go from here is, okay, so this may be something some people are listening, like, oh my God, I want to do Kristen's job. How do I get that? You know, what can you kind of talk about like some trainings and some things that you've gone through to kind of get the knowledge that you've gotten at this point? So I will say that my trainings have come a lot from your, you know, what made me unique was I was somebody that left acute pediatric care. So I kind of like plopped on their doorstep ready to go, which made it a little bit a little bit easier. You know, there's, there really isn't a great, uh, I can't give you one CEU that says, this is how you do dysphagia in the schools. I will say like Emily Homer has a lot of resources. She was kind of one of the main people that start, she's a speech language pathologist that used to work in Louisiana. Um, And she does a lot of, actually she helped from the ground up build, not only like safe swallowing, like feeding plan dressing, but also making feeding therapy. Like they write feeding therapy goals. They do feeding therapy and their schools um, down there. She has since left as kind of that role of um, an administrator in that program, but she really helped build it. So she had, when we were putting together this program, she has a book that really outlines step-by-step, like how did we do this? How did we train support staff? How did we get buy-in? What do our policies look like? What do our procedures look like? We actually brought her in to help kind of 
our, we call them member districts or schools that are around us kind of develop their own policies and procedures um, around it. So she has a wealth of knowledge um, in terms of, you know, if you're looking for law or procedures or, you know, how to like, how to build it, it is really a template for you um, if you, if you look her up. Um, on ASHA. She's got a ton of articles and, and a whole book that kind of step-by-step works you through. In terms of clinical skill set, though, I did a lot of just training on CEUs online, in person. I did um, a lot of my background early on was like oral motor and sensory feeding, which I've kind of gone back to now. So I did like SOS training and Catherine Shaker, you know, just all of those big names that you think of in pediatric dysphagia. I gobbled up as many CEUs as I possibly could um, through my time in acute care. So when I came into this job, I, you know, was able to say, this is what sets me apart and why I'm different and, and highly qualified for this position. I would say if you're already in a school and you have experience, it's still the same thing. You, if you keep going through those CEUs and keep just acquiring that knowledge um, about not only oral motor feeding and swallowing, but then also dysphagia, because in peds, it's really, there's two different, there's oral motor feeding and like picky eating and, and that kind of like restrictive diet, which is still closely tied to like oral motor skills. And then you have children with dysphagia and then you have kids that are kind of in the middle. So, you know, making sure you're seeing that whole spectrum in pediatrics, it's not just dysphagia. There is a feeding subset as well. And it's not always black and white. They're very gray. So I think you have to have knowledge of all of that. So you're able to really make that case. I think that's where I kind of completely lost my marbles was I had a, my son just has such a a weak, just, just weak lips and a weak chew. So like the kid's smart enough that like, if he takes a bite of something too big, he'll just spit it out which is, you know, it's a good compensatory technique. But on the other hand, we got to learn to chew. Like, right. <laughs> um, but I had a cow when I, there was an OT that documented that he had pharyngeal dysphagia. And I was like, number one, no. Number two, you don't diagnose that. Like, <laughs> and so that like opened up this whole thing. And I was like, no, you guys, he does not. Like his pharyngeal swallow is completely fine. We've just got to get him chewing better. Like that's where his needs are. But obviously you need to, you need to have the foundation and the understanding of how it all works together. It's a whole complicated mechanism and yeah. Right. And, and that's a whole other tangent, but I, th- I think, you know, the problem we even have too is there's like no consistent terminology that we use when we talk about oral motor and chewing and, and, you know, do you call it munching? Do you call it up and down job? Like there's just, so you get a report and if they're not speaking the same quote unquote language that you do in terms of oral motor, you're like, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Like, so it just adds another layer of confusion, but yeah, you can't just say, and, and the thing that I always seem to get, I've been really blessed to work with OTs that have really great understanding of, you know, our scope versus theirs and where the gray is and a lot of collaboration and consultation with them, you know, in, in this role that I'm in right now. So I, I've not actually had that same struggle, but yeah, I mean, I, I have in the past seen where other disciplines will say, Oh, they're just picky or, Oh, they don't, they don't like that texture. And, and I, my cautionary tale about those kind of statements. And, and even I hear them sometimes when I go in to do consults now, like, well, I've just heard that they're just a picky eater. Or they just don't like certain foods. And I'm, I'm looking at them like, well, they have an open mouth posture and their tongue's hanging out and they can't really chew. So yeah, I think they're not really picky about the pretzel. They're being smart and saying, I don't want to eat these pretzels because I'm going to choke and I know better. That's my son to a T. Yeah, that's my son to a T. Yeah. So it's not just, I won't do it. I mean, why, I mean, we're communication specialists. So at the end, you have to see why are they exhibiting the behavior. And a lot of times there's a self-preservation component of that. Like we get, I get frustrated because we'll try some things with him and I'm like, buddy, you gotta like practice chewing and he'll just spit it right out. Like he just knows like, I can't chew this, but it's like a struggle with like, but we got to practice. <laughs> I always say that there are many kiddos many times in a day that I will come across that are much smarter than me, even though I'm the one with the advanced degree. Um, I know it's like, he looks at me like, mom, you know, I can't chew this. Like, why are you giving it to me? He's like, you know? mom, so, this is not yeah. safe for me. What do, what do you do? Right, right, right. <laughs> You're supposed to keep me safe. I don't understand why you're giving me. I know. I know. I know. It's like, just give me some pudding. Yeah. But yeah. And I mean, there's, I think there's things to think about too, when you're trying to work on, you know, advancing chewing or oral motor, motor skills, like, you, you know, what is in a school, you know, there's just so many other factors. Do you, do you, do you really want that happening while your child's sitting next to the peers? And do you want them to have that degree? You know what I mean? Like, do you want it to be nice? But the flip side is there's social modeling that is great to capitalize on too. So 
I've seen kids, you know, through me just giving them the team some tidbits or, you know, some little bits of, you know, my knowledge base about, okay, well, here's how you can facilitate this. There's how you can encourage it, but not force it since you're not really doing feeding therapy. But even through that, and then the peers being around, you kind of, you do still see progress. So I think it's really, it's really cool. And it's really interesting. And, And I'm excited to kind of been part of at least a push to make sure that these kiddos are getting what they need while they're at school. They, yeah, I couldn't be more happy with kind of the whole team approach. Like, you know, what can we give him so that he does feel like he's eating the same things as them. And, you know, every time they are doing some sort of food activity, they're like, is this okay? Can we try this? And so it's just, it's been a wonderful collaboration. So I just wish more districts could Obviously, this is a private school, but I wish we could kind of bust down these walls of, we don't treat that, you know. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just such a hard landscape in education right now. We, funding is getting cut, and the needs are going up. We have preemies that are surviving longer and kids with more complex medical needs. So it's just trying to figure out how does that how does that fit into kind of an already taxed system? It, I'm not saying that there is a reason to avoid it. I think creative solutions are the way to look at it. So like I said, we resource there in our area. Um, I'm the resource that is shared. But I know when I talk to other people at ASHA, um, you know, some counties kind of dictate one SLP with the experience to kind of help mentor and oversee like all of this for multiple districts. I know there are some places that actually contract out. So, you know, they have contract companies for PTs, OTs, um, you know, in some schools, they'll then contract out to like a private practice or a, a pediatric hospital to like pull in a specialized SLP to at least come in and provide that evaluation and that kind of guidance for what they need to do in terms of at least meeting the child where they're at as like a good jumping off point. I don't think that's where we need to end, but I think, you have to make sure you're doing it with fidelity and you're not hurting the children. So at least making sure that you know where they are now and you're meeting them there it, it is really like sometimes where I, I think we need to start when we're thinking about this and making sure that's even been addressed. And then how do we capacity build is really what we call it where I am right now. So we're trying to build capacity to even identify the children that could benefit from some intervention. And then how do we build the capacity of the staff around them to identify concerns or then the therapists that are involved to be able to address the needs? Because, you know, it would be really unethical of us to start saying, okay, we're going from zero to doing therapy right now. Um, So everybody get on board. Like we're trying to just gradually grow it so that we can continue to build capacity so that people have the tools that they need to do it correctly. When I I did my CF in the schools a bajillion years ago, but like, I think of kind of like the AAC consultative model. Yeah. Like not every school has an AAC specialist, but most districts have someone, you know, when I was, like I said, when I was the CF, I had two kids on my caseload that did have AAC, but there was a consultative SLP that came in once a month and just kind of made sure I was doing things right. The kid was getting his needs met. And it was, I really just love that collab. Like I learned so much from her. I love that collaboration. And I just, I've kind of always thought about that in the back of my head. Like, why can't we have an SLP that has this foundation in feeding and swallowing be that person to come in and, you know, help the SLP that is, is kind of trying to manage the kid. It's funny you say that because when we developed our, what we call like the safe feeding program, we modeled it specifically off of our AT consultative process. So we have an AT consultant that goes out and, you know, does those consults, just like you said. And we literally said, this is no different. So it's just, we are a resource to you. So you can make sure you are doing right by the students that you serve. Um, And we are here to facilitate that to whatever degree that you need. So like I will say now, there are some SLPs that I've worked with over three years that they wanted me come in to do the consult, to write the plan, to talk about what the interventions look like, to come to the team meeting, to talk to the family, to help them write their policies and procedures for like how they were going to, you know, train staff in the, in the cafeteria. And I was happy to do that, but I'm also equally as happy now, three years down the road when I've seen them again, I'm like, Oh, here, here's what I saw. Here's my report. Here's my recommendations. Do you need me? And they're like, no, I've got it. I I know now, like I, I, I have the knowledge, like, I can carry this on. I just don't want to be the one making the call, but I definitely know how to implement this. I, I'm, I'm good to go. And I'm like, all right, call me if you need me. You know, it's great to kind of see that growth and be able to mentor, you know, peers in, in that way and just see people that at one time were really uncomfortable, really say like, you know, I'm still not comfortable. And I know that I'm, I don't want to be the one making these calls, but I am comfortable enough and have the knowledge base to implement when somebody with expertise comes in and guides me. So I think, you know, like you said, it's a great model if you if you can swing it that way. And I think that's probably the easiest way 
to get it started really is to, is it get it started on a consultative basis, at least from my experience. So yeah. Kristen, this was so wonderful. Oh, thanks. I, I could talk about this all day long. I'm sure you could. <laughs> I didn't used to think I could talk about this until I went through it with my son. And now I'm just like, what is wrong with this system? Yeah. I just think it's so silly that, that there's this kind of line in the sand. No, this is educational. This is medical. I mean, those kids that I saw in the hospital, turn around and go to school every, you know, every weekday morning or do at some point if when they get older. So it just really, you know, there's a big push in our field, you know, well, we should have an educational track or if it's a medical track. And I think that I, I don't know. If this is where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> yeah. This is what, this is where it gets messy. Like we're like, how do you draw that line? Like you really can't, especially with inclusive pushes, which I love the push for inclusion. I think you know, that it, it is exactly what we should be doing and we should be separating children, you know, from their typical peers because there's so, there's so much that, I think it's a two-way street. We talk a lot about what kids who have IEPs benefit from being from their peers, but I also think the flip side is equally as true. Um, it's having a daughter who is in regular ed. She learns a ton from being included with her peers that um, have needs. And I, I think- I think that was like my biggest fear when, you know, they approached me and said, well, there's this this private public sc- or private preschool it's like a mainstream school, but they, they're all inclusive. They would love to have Cam. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, are the, is it going to detract from the regular kids if my kid needs more attention? Like, I just had so many, you know, fears about that. But it's just such a beautiful, like, you know, they sit at the table. There's this little girl that just loves him. And she's like, we have to bring Cameron his veggie sticks for snack time. Like, you know, they just take such good care of him. Like it's, it's just the cutest thing ever. So, I mean, you know, he seeks out his little buddies and they, you know, include him in things and they love helping push him around his little walker. And it's just, it's beautiful. So I know, I think it's so beautiful. And I think that's where, you know, I think that's where we we really, it's gray. I don't think we can kind of make these determinations. And and I, and I really try to encourage students when I, when I talk to them in like any guest lectures that I do for like pizza dysphagia, or even in like my speech sound disorder class that I talked about, I'm like, you know, you may think, oh, I'm going to go into the schools, but like, you're not going to be able to avoid this. You still need to have the medical, the medical knowledge. And one other thing that I thought about that we didn't touch on too, is I know that there sometimes is a lot of cautionary tales about, well, can I recommend a swallow study or getting back to your, like one they said Cam had pharyngeal dysphagia, like, yeah. right. We can't, we can't, just like in any other setting, we can't diagnose it in a school because we don't have x-ray vision. And I know there's some cautionary tales where people will say, well, I'm not allowed to recommend that, or I can't, I, I can't make that recommendation because the school has to pay it. One of the things that I thought was really interesting when we had Emily Homer come in and talk to us was school districts are the pair of last resort. So in theory, yes, a school district, if you say the child needs a swallow study because I have concerns, you know, this, that, and the other, they could potentially have to pay, but they are like the last rung on the ladder. So it's like, if they don't have private insurance and they don't have Medicaid, but like, to be honest, at least in our state, these children typically have chip or medical access or something that's going to cover that. And, you know, if you really kind of have your hands tied that you, you know, your administrators are telling you, you cannot recommend this. I really tell people to, to, you know, kind of provide that education that you are the payer of last resort. But on top of that, this is part of the reason why I always get a medical release signed so I can get their medical records from the family. And then I also have them sign that I can communicate with their PCP so I can call the PCP. I've been in the situation where I'm like, I don't have x-ray vision. I don't know what's happening and I need a swallow study. And I call the the doctor and I say, listen, I have a medical release for communication between you and I, and here's what's going on. And they're like, okay, I'll talk, I'll call the mom and ask her to schedule. I'll put the order in right now. You know? So like, I think if you set it up from an onset that you're in a position to succeed, then you're able to get those things done. So I just wanted to kind of toss that out there because I know that's something that comes up a lot when people talk about, well, what if I need a swallow study? I can't get a swallow study in a school. Like it's no different than outpatient. You should just have to find the referral or find the physician and kind of network that way. Yeah. That's such a good, such a good point. I must say like, I mean, living in New York state and you know, all the therapists we've ever had, they've always made sure like, does he have coverage for this? Does he have coverage for that? This is who you need to call to get the coverage, you know? So there's so many people that have, I would, I would have no idea what the hell to do. Like I, I, but like, they've been so helpful in guiding us to the right people that are able to cover these things and, and things like that. So there's definitely so much help out there that I didn't even know about that. I'm glad other people do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we get medical assistance. That's like a lot of what I end up talking about is like, I'm a loophole, medical assistance, your child has an IEP, they qualify, you know, so 
yeah, there's definitely ways to make sure that these families get what one, what they need. And then two, you know, it, it makes sure that like when you're recommending something that the child needs, the, the financial liability isn't coming back on your district. So anything else we missed, Kristen? I think we covered it all. I think we covered it all. It's a lot to cover. <laughs> it is. I think we did great though. You did great. Not, nice. not we, we, you did. <laughs> Any final thoughts? I would just say that if you feel passionately about this topic, like I do, and you are, if you go into these conversations advocating for development programs like this in schools with the documentation and the research to back it up, like the IDEA, the cases that I've referenced, you know, information about nutrition and learning, you know, when, when you can tie this back to learning outcomes, you'll get special ed administrators who may not be SLPs, but maybe teachers or psychologists that really starts to speak their language. You need to just be able to bridge that gap. So I would just say, and if they shut you down, then I, I just, I don't take no for an answer. <laughs> I would just keep knocking at the door and just kind of keep pushing. Cause you know, there's kiddos out there. They, they need you and they, they need our expertise. Um, and that doesn't stop when they leave a hospital door and enter, enter a school building. So that's, that's just what I couldn't believe was how it was so well managed and taken care of in early intervention. And then he turned three and we're in CPSE and it fell off the face of the earth. And I was like, literally nothing different happened from yesterday. Like he had a birthday. That was all. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. You're so wonderful. No problem. It's been my pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.